So part of the skills that we tend to put under truth triggers um, have to do with the challenge when you're trying to seek the truth. Like, is this true about me? Is this something I do need to work on? What are you trying to tell me? Is the challenge to see what your giver is trying to tell you and also the challenge to see yourself accurately and that we need each other to do that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is this is why coaches are so crucial is that they help us see things that otherwise um, we wouldn't see. I'm Jim Knight, co-founder of the Instructional Coaching Group, and you're listening to Coaching Conversations, where I talk with coaching experts from around the world so that all of us can learn better ways to make an unmistakably positive impact on the people around us. Visit us at instructionalcoaching.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You'll receive free instructional coaching resources delivered straight to your inbox. Learn about our latest podcast episode, featured workshops, partner events, asynchronous courses, and more. It's a great free resource for instructional coaches, administrators, and teachers. I'm thrilled, clearly excited to be talking with uh, Sheila Heen, and I want to tell you a bit about her, and then I want to get right into the conversation. And Sheila is a lecturer on law at Harvard Law School, founder of an organization called the Triad Consulting Organization. She works with clients from around the world, including Apple, HSBC, Unilever, the Federal Reserve Bank, Pixar, Novartis, and uh, numerous other businesses. And she often brings uh, executive teams together to help them work through conflicts, repair working relationships, and make sound decisions. And she's provided professional development for the Singapore Supreme Court, the Obama White House, and theologians struggling with disagreement over the nature of truth and God. Uh, She's a co-author of the New York Times business bestseller, Difficult Conversations, How to Discuss What Matters Most, which has been named among 50 psychology classics, and by Penguin has been named as one of the 75 most important books they've published, which kind of blows my mind when you think of all the great books Penguin has published. Um, not that I don't agree. I think it's absolutely true, but it is a heck of an accomplishment. And her book, Thanks for the Feedback, won the, night, the, the 2015 um, Book for a Better Life Award. It's a book that more than anything else, in my opinion, is about how to learn or how to be coachable. And uh, both books uh, deeply influenced me. She's appeared on shows as diverse as Oprah and the G. Gordon Liddy Show, NPR, Fox News, CNBC's Power Lunch, her articles have been published in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, Fortune Negotiation Journal, and Real Simple. Um, but there's a few more things I want to say. Uh, one of them is that Sheila's work has had a huge influence on my thinking. So if you've read anything I've written since about 2005, it's been influenced by Sheila's work. And uh, pretty much everything I say about identity and many other topics, which we're going to talk about today, come from her. And I want to add, I'm also really grateful for the work at the Harvard Negotiation Project, where she's worked for the past 20 years. The books that come out of the Harvard, I was telling Sheila before we got on that um, it was like waiting for a Beatles album to come out when her books came out from, or the books came from the Harvard Negotiation Project. Um, uh, The project has been shaping my thinking ever since I read Getting to Yes in 1987. And getting, Getting to Yes shaped my understanding of what it means to share knowledge how you can have something that's simple and also have depth. And uh, I think I've read every book they've released, sometimes twice in different editions. 
In fact, her organization had such an impact on me that I named our center at the University of Kansas as the Kansas Coaching Project as a kind of shout out to the Harvard Negotiation Project. So thank you so much for being here. I can't wait. And um, let's go. So let's I want to... Oh, wow. That was quite an introduction. Thank you so much. Well, it's all the truth. I mean, uh, I remember when I first heard Getting to Yes... And uh, then I think the next book I read was Getting Past No. And then there was a book called Getting Together. There's one, I forget the title of it, about decision-making. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, or planning. And then uh, yeah, Roger Fisher. Yeah. Right. And then uh, I, even there's the one about the third way by William Urey about sort of negotiating nuclear disaster and avoiding nuclear disaster. And then... Roger had a book that came out, I forget the co-author, but came out um, a few years ago, uh, more about relationships and connection. And um, and there's others yeah. too, but I've read, I think I've read every one. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, you know, you're talking about sort of the journey of discovery that those books um, took you on. And of course it was the same for me, right? Um, I turned up at the negotiation project as a law student um, in 1990 and, um, not only fell in love with what they were trying to do, um, which very much was influenced by Roger's work and, and, and serving in world war two and being driven to find better ways to handle conflict, um, globally. Um, but Roger also cared an enormous amount about teaching and, uh, learning and writing. So how do you write a book that people can pick up and that will speak to them and that will actually offer something that is useful and practical rather than too academic, which might be insightful, but not useful. And so, so for me, that's been part of the journey is, is not only working to understand our interactions, but also working to understand the learning and teaching relationship as well. Well, I think that the beauty of those books and your books are that they're accessible they're simple, they're memorable, but they're deep, uh, or at least they're sophisticated. So, you know, separate people from the problem. Well, I'm never going to forget that phrase. That's a pretty easy phrase. Focus on issues. That's pretty straightforward. But then when you get into it, well, how do you separate people from the problem? Why is it hard to do that? And what, how do I control my emotions? And do I need to control my emotions in the midst of that? And uh, mm -hmm. how do we focus on issues instead of people, you know, then you get into more depth. And then, of course, they've got that nice summary at the back. So you can kind of say, oh, hey, I can go back through and, and put it all together. So I I really uh, was changed by reading those books. And I think they're, you know, I'm looking forward to more. So it's been great. Um, Roger made a, made a big distinction, by the way, between being simplistic and offering something that is simple, elegant in its simplicity like to, to create practical frameworks that people would remember and be able to use in the midst of the conversation that they're in that isn't going the way that they need it to go. Um, so yeah, it was, a, it was a huge learning journey for me, really. I feel like I'm still learning for Roger, from Roger, um, and he's been gone for eight years now. I once, uh, I once gave a presentation on getting to yes back in the days of overheads, and I'd written getting to yes on my overhead. Yep. And my son, uh, this would have been Jeff, Matt, um, came over and he looked at my presentation and said, getting toys. <laughs> he was really excited that I was doing a presentation on how to get toys. But now it's getting oh, you. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. 
Yeah. So um, I just got sort of a general first question, which is I this is my opinion, and I'm curious if you agree with me or not. But um, I don't think difficult conversations is just for difficult conversations. I think it's for all conversations. What are, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I I mean, I think you're exactly right about that. Um, it's that difficult conversations are the places where those cracks in the communication can actually become chasms right? Where we particularly have to reach across to understand each other. Um, so the principles are useful no matter what kind of conversation you're having, and hopefully they're preventative. We had lots of debate about naming that book Difficult Conversations because some of our colleagues said, you know, why are you naming the book after the problem rather than after the solution, right? Getting to yes is about getting to a better place. Um, and, you know, we just didn't have a better idea. Um, it, it spoke to where all of us feel the pain, I think. Like, oh, mm -hmm. I have those, right? Um, but I think you're you're absolutely right that um, the better you get at some of the principles I've found over a couple of decades, the more difficult conversations I actually have, because I'm not avoiding them, but the lower level they are right? Because we tackle them much earlier when they're not as difficult, right? We're just sorting something out rather than letting it fester. Yeah. You sort of give us the tools to be courageous. Is that mm -hmm. fair to say? I mean, because yeah. you know what you're going to do in this situation and you don't have to avoid it. And it, you, I can't remember the exact wording, but you said something to the effect of uh, if you have a difficult conversation, you're going to have to talk about the difficult stuff. You can't really avoid that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's right. But I also, in terms of courage, one of the things that's really helped me is that I think that when we imagine initially trying to have this conversation with this difficult person in our life, um, sometimes we we lay awake imagining how it's going to go. And when we explain to them all of the different ways in which they're wrong, we imagine their reaction, which is that this is not going to go well. So the risk of the conversation feels really high and the payoff the likelihood of, of any positive payoff feels really low. And, and part of part of the shift that we talk about in difficult conversations is actually shifting your purposes and moving from message delivery, why you're wrong, to, hey, why do we see this so differently? And that's just, it's easier to be courageous because it's much more likely to go well. You're not putting as much at risk. And so we're kind of lowering the stakes in what I'm trying to achieve in this conversation and the way I'm approaching it makes it much more likely that you're willing to even have the conversation with me. And that we'll each learn something. Right. Right. And just contextually, it's getting harder to have good conversations, it seems, if you, if you look at um, just how difficult it is to go home for Thanksgiving in some cases. It's hard to have hard to have these harder to have easy conversations in some ways. Um, in the book, you distinguish between what happened conversations, the feelings conversation, and the identity conversation. And that's a big part of the book and also a big part of the influence on my thinking. Could you tell us about those three different types of conversations and why they're important for coaches to identify them? Yeah, well, so when we first kind of embarked on this journey of trying to understand what's going on in these conversations when things get stuck um, and what helps, the first step was just looking beyond what people were saying to each other, the script or the text transcript to what people are really thinking and feeling below the surface or behind the scenes. So what what their internal voice is saying, and, and really we got that 
idea in part from Chris Ardris and and Diana Smith and and others um, over at the business school, the idea of the left-hand column or internal voice. Mm-hmm. And and then what we started to notice as we were working with people on dozens and then hundreds of of real conversations was that what the internal voice is busy doing, what we're each busy thinking and feeling in the midst of these conversations is actually pretty predictable. Um, the same kinds of things show up in people's internal voices. And from there, we kind of put them into three buckets. So there are three conversations in many ways that you're having with yourself, as well as having with the person that you're trying to talk to um, that are going on. And, and the first is maybe the most obvious, the what happened conversation, right? We're each debating what happened between us or what should happen right now or what should happen in the future, right? And that includes the story that we're each telling about that really has three pieces inside itself that are key. One is I'm usually preoccupied with what I write about um, because that feels safer to stick to. Um, Blame whose fault it is tends to be a part of the story, no matter what, for each of us. Um, And then why are you acting this way? What are your intentions or motivations or or character? What kind of person are you? And that those three things make up my story of what's happening. Um, But they, of course, make up your story and somehow your story is wrong. (laughs) Um, Then that's kind of the most obvious piece. And after that, we thought, well, there's also a couple more things going on. And these were sort of later insights for us. So the second is what you were referring to as the feelings conversation. By the time a conversation gets tough, typically one or or often both of us have a whole bunch of strong feelings and they're often a jumble of feelings. And and that raises the question, what do I do with my strong feelings, maybe particularly in a professional setting? Um, And then the last is, is the identity conversation. What we started to wonder about is why is it that some conversations are easy for you but hard for me and vice versa? What's going on with that? And eventually, um, Doug had the insight that actually, when a conversation gets difficult, there's something the situation suggests about me that that may feel at stake. Who's the good person or the bad person? You know, am I competent? Am I um, responsible? Am I honest? Am I um, lovable? Am I worthy? Um, and it doesn't even have to be said out loud, but I can feel it in the conversation. So that's in many ways the conversation I'm having with myself. And if we can untangle those three pieces, well, then we can deal with each um, on its own merits. You know, I've, I talk about this in kind of an academic way, thanks to, to your writing. And what you've done is you've given us a vocabulary for talking about things that we kind of knew, but we didn't have the words for, which is really, really great. Yeah. But But when your identity really gets shook it's it's not a small thing you know when you when you feel like actually i thought i was pretty good at that and uh i thought i was a pretty good you know coach or boss or friend or partner you know uh when your when your identity really gets shook uh it, it it can take a chunk out of you for it and it can take a long time to recover a really big chunk. I I think it it helps me understand why some of these conversations are so deeply painful or why when I step back, I think I'm kind of being petty about this, but it's not about whatever is on the surface. It's about how I felt treated or, or the shame that I feel about how I handled something, right? 
um, looking back and thinking, I, I do think I was partly responsible for that. And I'm kicking myself for it. I, I mean, really, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, but um, the identity piece of this being so deep is, is a lot of what took us to the second book. Right. You could argue that thanks for the feedback is really a deep dive into the identity conversation in large part. Yes, I would. I think so. And yeah, I think shame is a, a, an important thing to point out, because when you start to feel, oh, I'm not as good a person as I thought I was, or at least in this part of my life. Yeah, uh, that's that's when it that's when it's it's can be debilitating, you know, because and I think that's why we have defense mechanisms. I mean, do you think it's always we're going to jump ahead to feedback, but is it, do we always have to be learning or can we say today is a day where I think I'm not, I'm going to just, I'm going to just get through today, you know? Oh, totally. Like I'm done at least for the moment. Uh, yeah. I, I, I do think that we are always learning, but we are not always in a place. We are always learning writ large, but we're not always in this moment in a place where I really have the capacity right now to learn or I'm so overwhelmed by the number of things I have to learn that it's actually disabling me. Mm -hmm. And so this is not helping me. Um, so part of the feedback book was also saying, look, getting good at receiving feedback does not mean that you always have to take the feedback. And chapter 10 of that book is about boundaries and how to turn away feedback because many of us do have someone in our lives who are, <laughs> they're just an endless source of helpful little tips and criticism. Right. And in a lot of ways, drawing a boundary to turn that away is actually a very healthy, healthy choice. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about emotion, if that's okay. And what I'm wondering is, um, and you can answer this, of course, however you want, but um, do you think it's always important to keep our emotions under control? <laughs> always is a big word. Yeah. You know, it's it's a hard question to answer because sometimes I think do I do I think that being responsive rather than reactive will serve us well in 95% of situations and particularly professionally? Yes. And by that I mean pausing to think about how do I want to respond to this and what is the what is my purpose or what is my intention? What's the response I'm trying to get? Um, is almost always helpful. It's a big piece of what we teach people um, in our classes and our courses um, around negotiation in particular and difficult conversations. And I also think that sometimes we're so um, in, that doesn't mean you're leaving, leaving emotion out actually. So I think people hear that as great, just leave the emotions out all that touchy feely stuff. You don't want to open that can of worms and stick to business and the facts and that keeping your emotions under control means shut the, shutting the door on them. And I actually think in most cases, the opposite is true that by the time something becomes a difficult conversation, we're, we typically have at least two problems. One is whatever the surface issue is that we're disagreeing about or, or, um, frustrated by, but the second is how we each feel treated by the other. And if we're not talking about that, then we're not really getting to the root of the problem. So I think there's a big difference between sharing and describing emotion and being emotional. 
And I also, let me say one more thing that I have noticed actually right now in this weird time that we're in. Wondering about how to implement, reset, or recharge instructional coaching in your system? Contact our managers of partnership and outreach for the opportunity for your district or school to partner with our ICG consultant team to build and sustain your effective instructional coaching program. Our certified consultants work with your coaches and administrators to ensure high-quality professional learning tailored to your needs and geared towards long-term and life-giving implementation. Visit instructionalcoaching.com slash free dash coaching to learn about consulting and request a complimentary consultation. There's a, there's a pattern that I see sometimes um, in working relationships where, or, or in marriages, where one person, their response to stress is to become very calm. So the other person comes, they're really upset. Um, they explain why they're so upset, they're emotional, et cetera, and the response is to become even more calm, well-intentioned, right? But what that unintentionally communicates to the other person is either I don't get how upsetting this is to you um, or I don't care how upsetting it is to you. And there's a little bit of a judgment of like, what's wrong with you? You're being hysterical. Mm -hmm. um, so then the other person feels like, well, I, you're not getting it, so I need to escalate. <laughs> right. And so the more, the more calm I get, the more upset the other person gets. And I, I mentioned that I was noticing it during this time because um, my family had a very um, up and down financial life, right? So my dad it, taught me to be very risk tolerant, but he was a little bit risk seeking. So our family finances, you know, would vacillate between, you know, six months behind on the mortgage and I'm working three three jobs to get myself through college to, you know, oh, he closed a deal and he's bringing everybody to Australia to visit me. So, and then he would lose it again. So, so, and he'd say, you know, money comes, money goes. It's not what's important. So one thing that has taught me over time is that times like this, where money is very uncertain, right? Our business at Triad, all live events have been canceled, et cetera. Um, at Harvard, we've got a hiring freeze on, et cetera. I can respond to that very calmly and be very steady in that state. And what I have noticed this week actually is that my calm, I think, is unnerving my colleagues because they think I'm not understanding the situation, perhaps. And so I'm unintentionally, by managing my emotions the way that I cope with that kind of stress, um, making it, maybe making it worse. So what are you going to do? <laughs> throw up it <laughs> <laughs> no i think i think talking about it right right the to to say hey here's something i'm noticing and i'm wondering whether that's the impact on you right uh, so and let's just talk about that because that sounds seems like we're we're kind of talking past each other and missing each other emotionally in terms of connecting and me you knowing i get where you're at or maybe i don't get where you're at and, and that deserves more conversation What's your thought, Jim? I'm curious in your coaching practice and teaching. Well, one thing I would say, thank you for asking. What, I don't know for sure, but that won't stop me from saying something. <laughs> um, one thing I would say is I think what your book says about um, making sure you're giving the kind of feedback the person is expecting kind of might give us some guidance here to say, what kind of response is the best response for you right now? How can I respond? Yeah. 
And I think there's a way in which when I'm on my game, uh, which isn't as, you know, as much as I'd like, but where I can hear what the person says and play it back to them. And then they go, oh yeah, that's it. That's how I'm feeling, you know? And part of it I think is looking for the words, but there's just, there's just something about getting to the core and letting them know I get the core. I don't have to. Once I, I did this workshop and we were talking about empathy and that this person said, um, you know, I can watch the Titanic, but I don't have to get wet, you know? And, and she said, I can be moved by it and I can feel it, but I don't, I don't. And so, so, but I, I, I do think, um, my quick answer would be trying to, trying to find a way to let the person know that I really, I really get it and uh, to be looking for that. And you, you're, have taught me that we can be sensitive to when we're out of alignment here and we can realize we can see it when we're in alignment. I think that's the, that's the thing. I think the biggest problem we face now, and I've said this a few too many times probably, but it's just that, uh, people don't know what they're going through. Mm -hmm. They, they have stress. They can't even put words to, you know, they find them grinding their teeth or something. They're like, why am I doing that? And we have the same thing going on. And so it just yeah. makes it all hard because we have, we have stress coming from both ends and we don't even know where it comes from. That's that, that's the challenge. That's one of the challenges. No. Yeah. And, and the coping mechanisms that we each have learned unconsciously, right. For managing that stress mean often that we're not even self-aware that we're under it. We're just in autopilot, right. right. To get through fill in the blank, the day, the meeting, the conversation. Uh, it's interesting. But again, feedback is critical, which is my awkward transition to the next book. So um, <laughs> how did you how did you how did you come to write uh, the feedback? How, where did it come from? Um, well, it was a long time in coming, uh, as <laughs> you may have noticed, waiting for a next book. <laughs> um, you know, after difficult conversations was out and uh, taking hold in different places and 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 we were learning all of these ways in which it was being used that we didn't foresee. And, and we were learning from other people. Um, you know, our publisher is like, okay, what's the next book? Um, and, you know, we could do a whole series and maybe you should do difficult conversations for managers and for um, teachers and for parents and all of that. And, and it's not that we thought that that was a bad idea, actually. Um, but I think we thought, well, we tried to put a huge range of examples in the first book, and then we would just end up rewriting the same book with different examples. And that just doesn't seem that interesting in terms of mm -hmm. us trying to learn something. And I think people are smart enough to adapt, hopefully. We tried to use a wide enough range of examples that had a emotional truth at the core of the stories and examples that they would be easily translatable. So. That leaves us without an answer to what are we doing next? And, um, you know, it was 14, 15 years between books. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was it was really hearing over and over again from the leaders um, and people that we were working with that feedback conversations were a real struggle and, and trying to help them by helping them with the giving of the feedback. Um, which, as we were talking before this started about Ron Heifetz's technical knowledge and adaptive knowledge, I was thinking there's so much around of wisdom 
and advice around giving feedback that is very step-by-step. First say this, then say this, then say this, right? And it's not that that's necessarily bad advice, um, but it it wasn't solving the problem. And and eventually Doug actually was the one who said like, well, hang, hang on, we're, maybe we're only looking at half the equation, right? What, what so if you're, if you're on the receiving end, you're really in charge of what you take in and what sense you make of it. So what's so hard about receiving? Maybe that's what we should, what we're missing here. Um, Doug's had a great year for what are we missing um, that would help these puzzle pieces fall into place. And, and that turned out to be a fascinating question. And that's what took us down the path because um, we looked at what was out there and the answer was almost nothing. There are lots of books that say they're about giving and receiving, but the receiving paragraph, the one paragraph about receiving basically says, just take feedback, Good. <laughs> which didn't feel very satisfying from our point of view. I think it's genius. I think it's really, um, I will pass it along. Book to had, you really deserve yeah, for that actually. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, if the book had been about how to give feedback, I'd love the book, but it's so much more, um, because it's about really how to receive feedback and there's still, it's still. By helping us understand how we receive feedback, it's still helping us give better feedback. You know? so oh, it's- absolutely. And, and I'm really glad that you said that because often I have leaders initially who say, well, no, no, we don't need help with receiving. We need help with giving. And I'm like, the only way you're going to become a better receiver and have better conversations is by you becoming a better, re- sorry, the only way you're going to become a better giver is if you, mm-hmm. the leader, become a better receiver. Right. Partly because you're role modeling what you expect but also because you'll automatically become a better giver. You'll be able to anticipate the reaction that you're going to get and have richer two-way conversations. Well, and I think the conversation around being a learner is a really, really important one. Like I think, uh, you know, our context is mostly school. So, um, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a funny thing that we as educators end up talking about why am I not a better learner? How am I a obstructing my learning. Actually, I want to come back to that, but I thought we should probably clarify something. This is kind of a no-brainer question, but um, could you tell me what you mean by feedback? When you talk about feedback, yeah. what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I think what we think about automatically is like performance reviews, like formal ritualized and also tests, exams, right? A lot of what right. we do with teachers is we give them feedback about how they're doing and mastering the material um, and how they could get better. And so the, the formal stuff and performance reviews are definitely included, but, but we're really talking about all of the signals in the world around you about how you are impacting other people and the world. So they can be formal, but more often it's informal and it can be direct, but it can even be indirect or even unspoken, right? The fact that I haven't gotten a response to the email I sent is that feedback, right? Mm-hmm. Part of what's hard about feedback sometimes is trying to figure out whether this is about me or not. Um, and maybe you're just too busy, but then again, if you're too busy, why am I not a priority anyway? Maybe it is feedback. So so really we're talking, when I think about feedback, I think about sort of my relationship with the world and the world's relationship with me. And in that way, I've got coaches all around me. Um, and if I could get better at reading those signals and having those conversations, well, that means I, I don't have to wait around, right? For the perfect mentor to show up or for someone to finally come like my 
superintendent to okay funds to get a coach, right? I, I that will be amazing, and like we cherish those opportunities. But I, I also can take charge of and drive my own learning by asking for input from the people around me. So, can, and and maybe there isn't more to say about this, but can you say more about how we become? Um, I don't know what the word is. Uh, feedback seekers, mm -hmm. as opposed to you know defensive about about it. How how do we how do we kind of program ourselves to be on the lookout for feedback? Because as you make really clear, it's everywhere. It's there in the way people respond to us and different things. But we tend to. I don't want to speak for everybody in the world, but there's a tendency on some people's part, on my part, sort of to miss the chance all the time. For learning because we didn't even notice you know so how do we become more feedback uh, aware maybe mm -hmm. well we'll talk probably in a couple of minutes about types of feedback which is maybe additive to this answer but i'll give you the the other part of the answer which is what what we worried a little bit that we would create is sort of feedback fanatics you know the person who wants to sit down every after every interaction to debrief it so that, to get themselves coaching and feedback and that might be me actually, but anyway, that's, carry on. <laughs> that's, that's great actually, but eventually you're going to wear other people out, right? Because they're like, this isn't all about you. Actually, we have work to get done. Um, and so, and that's probably why my wife's going on a retreat this weekend, but anyway, I won't interrupt again. I, I promise. <laughs> yeah. Can we get her in here? We, we'll have a little <laughs> She got in. She'd be able to say, he is always asking for feedback. It, it, anyway. And by the way, this is the beauty of a coaching relationship, which mm -hmm. is this is actually all about what do I not see about myself and how do I learn and get better? And that's an amazing gift. Um, and with my colleagues, where we've got a lot of things to get done, what I want to do is, first of all, assume I'm sure I could be better at a bunch of these things, or I could just change small things that might make a big difference to my colleagues or to my students. Um and so life is, it's the whole growth mindset, Carol Dweck, like mm -hmm. I, I, it's a journey of learning and just questions what, what might be next for me. Um, and then it's just lowering the stakes. And so that there's a question that we recommend that people use, which is asking for one thing, sort of what's one thing that if we change it about how we run this morning meeting would make it better. Hmm. And that's a very quick practice that you can just weave into how you work together that you can have while you're going down the hall and you're not asking someone, Hey, could you sit down and be super honest with me every day about what could be better? It's instead a couple times a week. If you see improvements, I'm curious, I'm interested actually. Um, when I used to teach uh, speech, uh, that's how we would, uh, we would ask them to, heap the person with positive feedback. And then we had a thing which was O-T-T-W-O, -T -T -O, which was one thing to work on. And they would just lead one thing. And then I said, Lynn, look, some people are going to like things. Some people are going to not like things. But if something comes up over and over again, then you know that's the thing to focus on, you know, because different yeah. people see things in different ways. Well, and, and one of the things I think is really important about what you just said is if I ask you for one thing to work on, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not promising you all agree. Um, I, and I'm also not handing you a magic wand. Like what's one thing you would change about me if you could? Well, I wish you were taller. Like, okay, it's not really helpful. Um, I, personality transplant would be helpful. Um, but you're saying I'm curious about the input and, and I'm listening for themes over time. 
some of the ones I'll immediately think like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do it that way next time. And others will be like, huh, interesting. I don't know how that would work. I'm not sure it would, but let me file it away and think about it and listen for whether others um, have ideas for, for how to change that in a way that I think would work. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, so yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, so it's too much feedback. In other words, what I'm hearing is that too much feedback isn't that helpful either. It's really about folk feedback. We can actionable knowledge to use an arduous term. So actionable, actionable knowledge. And when I'm in a space where I can hear it, metabolize it and act on it. Um, and, um, you know, I'm the one who has the best sense of when that is too. So I'm sharing responsibility with you for figuring out how together we navigate that if we're colleagues. So why is it, and we've been alluding to this throughout the whole conversation, but why is it so difficult to accept feedback? <laughs> why is it difficult for you to accept feedback? Uh, I actually embrace it more than most people as probably everybody else thinks too. But at any rate, um, but I, you know, if you look at the Gallup strength thing, learner is my number one thing. And I'm really? kind of, uh, I like the dopamine hit of learning. Um, it's part of your identity, actually. Part of your but, identity. When, right. But I would say, but those times that uh, feedback crosses with my identity, um, all those things you talk about, the what happened conversation and so forth, uh, they can interfere. And when I, when I feel like, um, I've been treated unfairly by what I've yeah. heard. Yeah. Or I feel, if I feel like, wow, my whole world just changed here. In some cases I've had, you know, maybe I have a conversation like that every couple of years, but when that happens, some cases I've been able to really grow from it. Other cases I've just, it's been kind of, uh, debilitating, you know? So, mm -hmm. Paralyzing. I don't know if I've answered your question. Yeah, or just uh, took the glide out of my stride. You know, I just didn't yeah. have quite the same energy for things because I was like, "Oh, I really brought everything under question." Yeah, you know? and mm -hmm. there was a point in our marriage with Jenny where she said to me, "You're working too much, and uh, your son and I need to know that um, we're as important as your work." And right now, we don't. And that has to change. That was extremely hard to hear, uh, but uh, was the best thing that ever happened to me because, in in you know, now um, I'm just profoundly grateful for our marriage. It's such a good, strong, central part of who I am. And had I carried on blissfully thinking, "Oh, I'm just such a good husband, a good father," and not gotten, not heard the feedback, I never, I never would have learned that. You know? And did you? get to that place right away when she said it? Well, the consequences were pretty high, you know, yeah. <clears throat> here I have this marriage and it's not going the way it should be going. And, uh, it matters a lot to me and I, I've got to change. So yeah. I would well, say, yeah. uh, because of the stakes, it, it hit me pretty quickly. Yeah. And, and, and it's also sounds like for her to take the step to sit down to talk to you about it signaled something in and of itself about how serious maybe it was or how deeply she felt it. Yes, absolutely. And she did it with an enormous amount of grace, but also, uh, it was serious, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't, 
we're just going to have this talk and go back to where we are. It was like, right. no, this is. Right. You'll reassure her. No, actually, you are important to me. Don't worry. And then, but anyway, I got this call that I got to go right. to. <laughs> um, I'll send you an email later about it. Right. Um, I think I, well, I love everything that you just said because it, it, um, it really echoes my own experience in my life, both reacting to feedback um, and sort of the metabolizing time mm-hmm. and sort of moments that have been really important in life that have changed something important um, that often they come from feedback conversations and relationship. So, um, and, and when I was asking sort of about your reaction, that that's part of what we did with people is as we were working on the feedback book, we would notice our own reactions, but have, you know, thousands of conversations with everybody that we knew and students and clients, et cetera, about their own reactions to the feedback they were getting. And, and what we started noticing is that you could sort them into categories. I think you actually hit all three of them, but the, the observation or, or conclusion we came to is that as human beings, when we get feedback, uh, solicited or unsolicited, uh, we have sort of three kinds of trigger reactions. So the first mm-hmm. is truth triggers, right? Like, is this right or wrong? Is it good advice or bad advice? Does it feel fair to me? Um, is it an accurate representation of what happened or what I was trying to do or would it work? Um, so it's all about evaluating the quality of the feedback itself. The second kind of trigger though is a relationship trigger. Like, for you to tell me you're worse at this than I am, I, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I cared about what you thought you know do i trust you do i think you have my best interests in mind do you really care about me are you just trying to hurt me there's all all feedback is in the context of a relationship between giver and receiver so the who sometimes matters even more than the what um and in your case with your wife that was a positive effect i mean this is why the people closest to us best friends spouses that we really trust to be straight with us can get through to us when maybe other people can't. Um, but it also works the other way. It's sometimes it's why we don't hear things from the people closest to us. Um, with my husband, sometimes I just don't even cut his feedback. It's just him complaining um, or being in a bad mood, right? It's like, this isn't really about right. it. You know. um, and then the third kind of trigger is an identity trigger, right? So um, it rocks our sense of self. It rocks what I thought I was doing or who I was, who I am in the world. And, um, and it's so painful that it's maybe debilitating. And so I'm just not in a place where I can learn from it or I'm trying to sort, is that really true or fair in terms of my own self story lining up? Um, and so the question of, is that the end of the story? Like I have a bad reaction to your feedback. And so I look for something wrong with it and I, then can set it aside and move on with my life? Or are there a set of skills? Um, and also there are leadership skills, I think, for getting good at not letting the trigger be out of the story, but staying in the trigger and looking for what might be right about what the other person is saying, even if that's only 5 or 10%. It might be something to keep in mind and, and keep looking for. And how do I understand the pain of this feedback? And I, how do I get to the learning part a little bit faster? in many cases, because so often we look back and we're like, oh, it's a horrible situation. You know, I worked with this horrible person, but I did learn a lot. 
right? I was miserable at the time. I thought they were totally wrong, but looking back, I can see what they were right about. Um, so is there a way that we could like move along that path a little bit faster? Yeah, I think I love what you say that identity is the story we tell ourselves about who we are. And I think sometimes um, that story can really inhibit our capacity to learn because we don't want to give up that story. But right. yet, if we don't, you know, really learning is about changing your story about who you are to some extent. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so uh, I think uh, if you can see it as uh, an opportunity to get another perspective on things, as you say, rather than, um, oh, this person's criticizing who I am. Like, how can I take that that information and use it productively to be a truer version of myself or something to that effect? Yeah, and and you're you're also raising the question of blind spots, right? Mm -hmm. Which we, um, I have a story I tell about who I am, and it's based on a lot of information I have about myself. But what's not included is a lot of information I don't have about myself, about the way I'm impacting other people. And so, part of the skills that we tend to put under truth triggers um, have to do with the challenge when you're trying to seek the truth, like, is this true about me? Is this something I do need to work on? What are you trying to tell me? Is the challenge to see what your giver is trying to tell you and also the challenge to see yourself accurately and that we need each other to do that, right? I mean, mm -hmm. this is this is why coaches are so crucial is that they help us see things that otherwise um, we wouldn't see. Right, right. Um, if we can hear it, yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, I think that's what's helpful about your book is you help us figure out as coaches how we can express things in a way it could be heard. And one of those things is the distinction you make between uh, different kinds of feedback. You talk mm -hmm. about appre appreciation, evaluation, and coaching. So yeah. could you explain those and yeah. why it's important to understand? Yeah. So um, so by the way, people toss around this word feedback, but we suggest that there are three kinds. And by the way, we did not make up these three kinds. Um, you probably know that they turned up actually first in a book called Getting Getting Things Done by Roger and Alan Sharp and, and John Richardson, and uh, who's my husband. So he reminds me that I did not make up this framework um, <laughs> to give credit where credit did, is due. Did you, did, do you then tell him, are you giving me evaluative or appreciative thank, coaching? Thank you for the appreciation, yes. Um, so... Uh, so the idea here is that there are three different types of feedback and that they have really different purposes. And part of the problem is that we get them sort of muddled together. Um, for me, the easy way to remember them is ACE, A-C-E. But interestingly, we, we have a little bit of an allergy to acronyms um, because often they can be forced or whatever. And so it didn't even occur to us to include ACE as an acronym in the book. Although afterwards, of course, it's how we teach it all the time. It's like, okay, that was a little overreaction on our part because ACE is actually helpful. So the first time kind is appreciation. Like I just, I see you, I get you. I see how hard you're working. I see what it's costing you to deliver what you're delivering. You know, you spent a ton of your weekend making sure that this was going to work on Monday morning. And that matters to me. Like I notice it. And it's a big piece of what keeps people motivated and engaged, et cetera. Um, but it also actually has the a shortage of appreciation, if I feel underappreciated by you or not seen by you, is a big piece of what gets in the way of the second type, which is coaching. And 
as you know, Jim, coaching, really good coaching, um, has it's become a bit of a term of art um, for everything that we teach coaches, um, both of us, around how to um, help someone else learn. Um, and we also mean it as the bigger category. Like if it's designed to get help you get better, it counts in this category. So it could be, you know, correction, role modeling, et cetera. But the, the purpose of it is to make you expand your knowledge, effectiveness, efficiency, whatever. And if I feel underappreciated by you and the first thing you have to say to me after six months of working together is something you want me to change, like, screw you. Do you have any appreciation for right. all that I'm doing? And this this is parent-teacher conferences in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, right? Um, uh, Although there's so, a lot of identity wrapped up in the parent-teacher conference. A lot of identity on all sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this funny conversation where both sides maybe feel leaving underappreciated, leave feeling mm-hmm. underappreciated, um, and maybe not hearing the coaching as a result. And then finally, the last type is evaluation. And evaluation rates or ranks you. It tells you, based on some set of expectations, how are you doing? So this is tests, right? It's gauging our, our students moving along is the student understanding what are they not understanding that we need to work on it's also performance reviews and appraisals um but evaluation tends to be the biggest um the most volatile emotionally because we feel judged um and so it can then interfere with people's ability to shape coaching because they feel judged and then they don't hear the what people are trying to offer to help them get better what would you and add so, to that? You're so familiar with it. Well, first off, what I like about what you say is how if the person is wanting affirmation and you give them coaching, they're not really going to embrace the feedback. But the other part of it is that if they want coaching and you give them affirmation, well, it's nice to get affirmation, but really I want to get better. And so I like your idea of um, of trying to either ask the person what kind of feedback do you need here or just trying to suss out where they are. I think that's that's a really useful thing. But I would add something to it for what it's worth, which is there's a difference between sharing information in, an, in, an, in a moralistically judgmental way yeah, and in a non-moralistically judgmental way. This is Marshall Rosenberg and nonviolent communication would be one of the people who makes that really clear. So if I say to somebody, what are you thinking when you do that? Versus, um, are you oh, I noticed, I noticed it. Yeah, or like, don't you care about kids? Or uh, alternatively, if I say it without moralistic judgment, oh, I gathered this data, I know how much you care about kids. We can work together to make this happen. You know, if the person doesn't feel moralistically judged, then they're going to be open to, and I'm kind of hesitant to use the word judgment, but I'm not sure what it is, discernment or something like that. But, you know, if you gather data and you share the data uh, in a way that's not moralistically judgmental, it's the moralistically judgmental part that gets us in a lot of trouble. Is how I gets us in trouble and hooks the identity, right? Piece, exactly. Immediately. Right? Yeah. Are you an idiot? Are you stupid? Do you not care about kids, um, et cetera? I think that's absolutely accurate. And and I would say we actually need all three types of feedback: appreciation, coaching, and evaluation in order to learn and grow. But we need different types of different times, and so part of our working relationship together as colleagues or really student teacher, et cetera, is, um, you know, what type of feedback would be useful to you right now, as you say. Um, And to really reflect on, boy, if I feel a shortage of one of the types of feedback, 
how do I share some responsibility for thinking about well, who could I go to to get it? If I want more coaching, do I wait around or do I think, oh, actually, so-and-so is really good at this. Maybe I'll go talk to them or ask them to sit in and just give me a, a couple of um, observations. You know, what I've seen with this uh, in my work is that uh, people also have a tendency to give the kind of feedback uh, that they're, I don't know, it's kind of like um, the love language or something, you know? Uh, so yeah. if I'm really a yeah. person who wants a f affirmation, I give a lot of affirmation. Yeah. If I'm yeah. really a person who wants to know I'm doing okay, I keep telling you you're doing okay. And so it's almost like we have to become self-aware of our own way. I don't know, maybe this is going too deep into it, but. Well, and, and you're also, it's not going too deep at all, actually, but, but I would also make a distinction. People talk about positive feedback versus negative feedback. I would actually make a slightly different distinction between appreciation and evaluation. Mm -hmm. So you're doing okay is actually evaluation. It's positive. Right. Or that was the best interview you've ever done, Jim, right? That's rating or ranking this interview against all the other ones that we have loved and watched. Um, so positive evaluation often doubles as appreciation because you feel really seen. But there's also appreciation that doesn't have any evaluative component. Right. Right? It's just saying, um, you know, I, I... I see you. I really see how hard you're working at this, actually. Mm -hmm. And then we might go on to say, here's what I see changing. Right. Um, and how are you feeling about it? And what would you like to add next? Right? Which then moves us into coaching. Um, and I think you're totally right that people offer whatever either leaps to mind for them or they wish for. And often we mean to coach, but what we offer is evaluation. Right. Yeah. You know, like, well, that was sort of a disaster. How do we fix it? Right. <laughs> Like, oh, great, thanks. I'm having this weird experience with this conversation because I'm like, that's exactly what I think. But then I go, yeah, that's because I read the book. Um, <laughs> but at any rate, it's kind of funny. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm with you all the way. I, th I think that's absolutely true. I think, uh, you know, uh, affirmation is, could be something like, uh, I know how much this matters to you. You know, yeah. that's not necessarily, I don't think that's an evaluative statement, but it's one that it says, I see you, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, another phrase you've got, and um, maybe it fits in here, is uh, we should see feedback at actual size. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, th I think that's an important one. What do you what, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's so hard. Um, so one of the things that we kind of stumbled upon was some evidence that suggests that people's sensitivity to feedback can vary. Individual sensitivity, like how upset do you get, um, and how long does it take you to recover. Or how happy does positive feedback make you and how long do you sustain that? The individual sensitivity can vary by up to 3,000%. And now we're all in the same classroom, school, teaching team, et cetera. I, I work on teaching teams, right? So lead a team of seven faculty this past semester as we're teaching together. Um, and we all had totally different feedback profiles. So what will happen is whatever my profile, if I have a big reaction to this particular piece of feedback, because by the way, even people who are relatively even keel, it depends, right? It depends on who it, who gives me the feedback and what it's about. I can still get upset. Um, but if I'm particularly upset by a piece of feedback, it's like the feedback itself gets supersized. Like one thing becomes everything 
mm-hmm. now becomes forever. Like I've always been terrible at this. I'm never going to get better. I'm a total fraud and imposter. And right. um, I'm a horrible person. I can't believe that I made the same mistake again. And so in that state, we just, you can't learn. And so mm-hmm. part of one of the chapters of the book is about dismantling those distortions so that you can see the feedback at actual size. Um, because that's the place where actually I can maybe learn something from it. So we talk a little bit about um, a containment chart. Um, like what is this feedback about and what isn't this feedback about? Right. So this feedback maybe is about whether my wife and my son feel like I'm available to them or attentive to them, or or maybe it's about whether if there's an interruption, what do I prioritize, right? Or what am I preoccupied with? Who knows? You mm-hmm. don't have to ask many more questions to understand what they're trying to tell you. What isn't it about? Whether they love me, whether they believe I love them, but maybe I'm not living it the way that they want me to. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether my son is doing great and becoming an amazing kid and young man. And so it's a way to say, okay, this is what it is about. This is what it isn't about so that I can actually have a little bit of boundary to keep it from getting supersized. It's kind of the opposite of minimizing, you know, we also minimize feedback. Yes. That's what struck me. Um, Yeah, for sure. Unfortunately, we're getting low on time and there's a a whole bunch of things I want to ask, but um, there's two things in particular, three, I guess I'm going to try to squeeze in. so first off, um, when, how do we decide when we should turn down feedback? I think, I think it's related to a little bit of what we've been talking about, which is um, if it's undermining my sense of self and if it's a pattern in the relationship, like are my feelings and my needs part of this relationship or not, then that's actually a really unhealthy um, dynamic between us, or it's just not helping, right? You just give me a list of 30 things to change the next time I lecture or whatever, um, teach, and that's actually making worse rather than better. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I think the question of, is this helping in what we are trying together to achieve or what you are trying to help me achieve? Um, I get to kind of manage that and be in charge right. of that. So we ask ourselves, is this helping in terms of what we're doing together? I guess it'd be a, is this helping is just a simple, but a powerful question to ask when we get feedback. Is it going to help me? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are days when I present and, um, <clears throat> back when I used to present, but at any rate, there are days when I present and, uh, you know, I'm fortunate to usually get pretty good feedback, but some days it just doesn't go the way you expect. And I'm like, I'm going to read this, but this is not the week, <laughs> you know, I'm going to get through today and I can see things I should have done differently. So this isn't the time. And so that's that idea of, is this emotionally the time for me to take the feedback? That might yeah. be a part of it too. And, and um, also you're pointing out that the feedback we have for ourselves is often the most painful feedback. And right. so the question of, can I, can I negotiate with myself to accept that every single talk I give can't be the best one I've ever given and give myself a little bit of a break there and when i'm ready come back to say okay is there something to learn from the experience second question is what have you learned since you wrote this book (laughs) 
about uh, feed, not in general, but about feedback. About feedback. Now that the book um, is out, I don't know if you had the same experience, but I'm like, oh, I wish I'd known that. I would have put it in the book. Oh, totally, totally. Um, I've been, I've been really wrestling with my own learning edge. I think I am more even keel. I'm, I'm more on the stable side of it. I get really painful feedback, like stick to my stomach, shame, can't sleep feedback periodically. Um, and I think I have a better appreciation for the fact that I am going to metabolize it and bounce back to try to look the way to learn from it a little faster than some of my colleagues. This actually made Doug and I a good pair because I'm probably on the two um, even keel end and he's super sensitive to feedback. And then the challenge for me is that people are going to be trying to give me feedback and I'm a little too quick to dismiss it or think it's not a big deal when it's taking them some courage to tell me something. And for me, it's been actually, Sheila, pay attention because they're trying to tell you something important. Very interesting. Tell me, um, this is a tough question, but can you uh, summarize three strategies you think coaches should take away from your book and start using tomorrow? Oh, gosh. Well, I don't know if your coaches have the same profile I do, but when I am working with someone, it's really easy for me to take on an overdeveloped sense of responsibility for their learning. And I can be really hard on myself. Now, that's not to let myself off the hook, but is there a different way for me to invite them into that collaboration and to help equip them to make the most of the feedback that they're getting? Um, and um, for me, a lot of the what I've learned in the course of, of this last project over the last few years um, has been that sense of shared responsibility for us to support each other and offer each other what we each need in order to learn and grow in the way that we're collaborating. And I think coaches have thought a lot about that dynamic, but maybe this is a way to hand the coachees something to say, hey, read this, and then we have a vocabulary for talking about that that we can add to the vocabulary we already have. Oh, that shared vocabulary is really, really critical. That's really yeah. key, at least in my experience. I mean, you really don't have a conversation without it, of course, but we don't realize that, 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 that thing. So what's next? What's your next project? I don't know. We're on the hunt. We're on the mm. hunt for this project. We don't yet have the right question. I think we're learning a lot, but but we're always looking for a question that is book worthy. So we think this is probably a trilogy, but mm -hmm. we're not sure what the third book is yet. So I'm open to suggestion. Well, there's people watching, so look exactly. out. We we'll gather together any suggestions and send them there. Send them your way. Um, Thank you so much. I'm so sorry the time's up. It's been such a great conversation. And uh, I've, uh, I'm grateful for the awesome presentation you gave at our conference. Grateful for your books and really grateful to, for this time. And uh, I'm grateful for how much your thinking has shaped my thinking. It's really, it's really um, not just you, but your whole community, but especially these two, two books. This is this, this, this one. This one's really changed. This is the right cover, too. I just want to say oh, the cover like we all prefer rather than a paperback cover. But, I'll just, but Jim, I, I think both to you and to everybody listening, 
as fellow coaches, fellow teachers and learners, it's just always such um, such fun and so rewarding to just as fellow travelers, right, in this world, um, to take a little bit of time to just connect and reflect on what we continue to learn over our lifetimes. So thank you for that opportunity. Well, thank you. It's great. And I'm just going to mention that next week, I'm talking to Sherry St. Clair, who wrote this book, Coaching nice. Redefined, and it's going to be fun to talk with her. But um, uh, thank you so much. I've got so much to think about. I'm going to have to watch the tape again and rethink everything I've been thinking. So thank you, and uh, and, and uh, hopefully we'll get to talk again. Thank you.